This episode of History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast, is brought to you by Frame Nation. Frame Nation is your one stop for any kind of framing needs you have, display needs, whatever you got. Um, they can get you excellent stuff. You know, things that, uh, you know, complement whatever it is you're displaying, whether you're looking for the, you know, museum quality, you're looking for something a little more affordable, something very traditional. You can also get something very unconventional, something uh, uh, a little funky. They have some really nice stuff in there. You can always find out more information about Frame Nation at framenation.net, framenation.net. You can also just go down to 11 South 15th Street, right down to Shaco Bottom, where Frame Nation is located. Talk to them. Excellent staff. Very helpful. Let them know what you're trying to display. They'll help you out, get you all set up. And check it out, Frame Nation. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, anywhere you follow people. Follow them there. And go on down to Frame Nation. This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. Hope you're having a fantastic day. If this is you know, not the first time you're listening, you might be noticing this is not the normal theme song. This is actually Richmond-based band Long Arms, and it's a song called Crazy Bet about the topic of the show today, Elizabeth Van Loo, the infamous U.S. spy in Richmond during the Civil War. And my guest is Catherine Wright. Catherine Wright is a curator uh, for the, the flag collection at the Museum of the Confederacy, which is now part of the American Civil War Center. If you're you know, interested in the song, I will at the end of the podcast actually play the entirety of the song without me mumbling on about it, you know, different stuff on top of it. Um, but check that out. Check out Long Arms. Uh, and, you know, Catherine Wright, you know, she, she gets, we, we talk about Elizabeth Van Lu, who you know, lived in Churchill. Uh, she lived, actually lived where Bellevue Elementary is, uh, which is actually having their 101st school year, which is all kinds of impressive right now, um, and just finishing that up. Um, but the, the school is not her house. Uh, the school is built on the site of her house. Uh, she, you know, her home was uh, known as the um, Adams Van Loo Mansion. And if you want to see what the house looked like, uh, I'm going to post some pictures at historyreplaystoday.org. You'll also find some pictures of Elizabeth Van Loo, you know, links to all the other episodes if you've never heard them. And, you know, you can comment there if you like. Uh, you can also comment at, um, on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, or just email me, jeffmajor at historyreplaystoday.org. That's J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R at historyreplaystoday.org. But uh, Van Loo is super interesting. Um, she's a very interesting figure that is not given enough attention. Uh, but we're going to give her enough attention today, I think. Um, but if you don't get enough attention, you still are interested in women, Civil War, and um, Elizabeth Van Loo and spies, um, the, the Museum of the Confederacy is going to be offering some, a couple really interesting things. Um, on June 14th, from 1030 to 12, uh, it's From Bells to Battle Axes, Walking Tour. <laughs> That's a heck of a name right there. That's June 14th from 10.30 to 12, um, Bells and Battle Axes Walking Tour. Um, also, they're going to be having a Spies and spies Family Fun Day. Um, sounds like games and you know code decoding messages and stuff like that on July 11th from 10 to 4 uh, with a special appearance by none other than 
Elizabeth Van Lu herself. Um, she'll be there about one-ish till about 1.45, what I understand. Um, but uh, to get more information on these events uh, and much, much more that the Museum of the Confederacy is doing, um, you can go to moc.org. That's moc.org. And click on events, and you'll find all kinds of different stuff there. But um, if you can't find anything at moc.org that you find interesting, um, any of the events there, which I find very hard to believe, you can go to River City Segs, the premier Segway tour company in Richmond. Um, River City Segs is uh, has the only indoor Segway-specific training area in Virginia. Come check that out. Uh, always practice safe Segs. And River City Segs, mostly history tours, but we also offer riding tours. You know, they're very scenic, um, public art tours. Just come out and experience a Segway. And if you, you know, if it's the price that's holding you back until Father's Day, um, we'll be actually offering buy one, get one free gift certificates that are good for one year after the date of purchase. Um, so it's a great gift for dad. You, know, you don't have to come out on Father's Day. Um, come out anything from you know when you buy it, you got a full year there. But if this is the first time you've ever listened to History Replays today, um, it is a, a podcast comes out on the 1st and the 15th of every month. Um, authors, historians, you know, Richmonders that have lived through some pretty amazing things. Um, let me know if you have any, anybody you want to hear specifically, you know, it's available at historyreplaystoday.org for free on iTunes for free, Stitcher for free, tune in and support the podcast. You know, if you can donate a little bit of money, do that. And you can do that at historyreplaystoday.org. Um, hit on the, uh, support button. You can also find out information about, uh, um, uh, sponsoring the podcast, uh, or, you know, the easiest way to support the podcast is just tell somebody about it. You know, post it on Facebook. Tell your tell your friends, tell your cousins, tell everybody they should subscribe to the Richmond History Podcast. Um, but I started out talking to Catherine, um, and we, you know, she started. I, I'd like to do an entire episode on you know the effects on women in Richmond um, during the Civil War. Um, but we kind of started out briefly talking about that. War uh, in, in any time period can open up new avenues in terms of occupations um, for, for women of, of various classes. And what often happens after the war, when the men come back home, is many of them want their old jobs back. And right. so women kind of have to take a bit of a back seat. What's interesting during uh, and after the Civil War was that there was um, uh, such a, a loss of life of young men, especially here in the South, that in many cases there were not enough men to step back into all of those old professions. Right. So the window of opportunity for women was a little bit broader after the war in certain occupations such as teaching and nursing, which prior to the war had, had very much been much more male uh, um, they had been much more male-centered occupations. Right. Well, um, most occupations were male. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, really, the, the idea of uh, of of a, of a woman of you know upper class or, or even middle class stature having to seek paying work outside of the home had uh, certain implications that were not particularly right. pleasant for the family, sure. and at the very least, just seemed to imply that the the male head of the household was not you know adequate you know right. was not adequately fulfilling his traditional nineteenth. Sure. Century roles of being the the, the breadwinner, um, 
So uh, that was one thing that a lot of women discovered during the war was they actually enjoyed working and having some kind of task. Uh, and, and, it, and, for, and some of them obviously needed the money, but some just were a little bit surprised to find that they looked forward to having a job to go to. Yeah. So it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> um, socializing is pretty awesome. Stuff. <laughs> but at a certain point, you're like, eh, yeah, we need to do something else. <laughs> Being a woman in Richmond during the Civil War um, could give you certain opportunities um, if you were willing to look for them. Um, and some women, like Elizabeth Van Lu, definitely took advantage of the fact that they were women sure. to fly a little bit under the radar to help gather information for the Union Army. Right. Um, there were a lot of Unionists living in Richmond and throughout the rest of Virginia during the war. And um, maybe you know those of us living here in the South can can sometimes forget that because mm -hmm. we you know we're often focused on southern history and the confederacy and we don't always stop and think about the fact that not everyone uh, was a huge supporter of the south or or of the or uh, or of the confederacy um, that there were a lot of um, white southerners as well as the majority of free and 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 slave african americans who were very much rooting for 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 union victory like, were they open? Could they? Could could anyone be open? Two different degrees, um, okay. and I would say that by and large, women could get away more than men with expressing some union sentiment. Now, obviously, if you're living in Richmond, in the capital of the Confederacy, being too vocal in expressing any kind of unionist political sentiment was going to get you in trouble. Sure. Um, but as a woman, you were kind of thought of to a certain extent as not either being intelligent enough or able to comprehend political matters. Mm -hmm. So women had always been, in a very traditional way, kind of assumed to be non-political beings and right. kind of unable or unwilling to kind of form their own political thoughts. Um, and so therefore, uh, a lot of people could kind of, you know, kind of ignore to a greater degree if a woman was saying things, you know, to the extent that she, you know, maybe hoped for a union victory or something. Um, I would say as the war progressed, those kinds of things would become much more dangerous. Right. And um, I honestly don't know if there was ever um, a, a case where a woman was executed uh, as uh, as a, a spy for the Union, uh, but but they certainly uh, went and placed various people uh, in, in in prison, both both men and women. Um, right. So women certainly could be suspected of Unionist activity, but I think that you know, as I've said, to a certain extent, they were able to be a a, a little bit excused from that by virtue of the fact that they weren't traditionally seen as political. Right. And this was something that um, some women definitely used to their advantage. Sure. Um, so in the case of Richmond's most famous spy, who was uh, the, the famous uh, Van Lu, uh, she, she, um, she was about 40-some uh, years old when, when the war broke out. Mm -hmm. um, her father had died when she was 25. And um, she, uh, so basically she was a fairly young woman when she became kind of financially independent. Uh, mm -hmm. she, she inherited from her father uh, at the time of his death in 1843 uh, something that would be the modern equivalent of about $200,000. Um, so okay. she had quite a lot of money. Um, she initially used a lot of it to... Where does he get his money? Uh, he was a northern-born uh, man. I think he was, he, he'd originally been from Long Island. Mm -hmm. And he married the daughter of a former Philadelphia mayor. Um, okay. And then he actually moved down to Richmond to 
to uh, go and further expand his his business. And he became very well-to-do. Uh, they, uh, he, he built a uh, fabulously wonderful and large mansion up on Church Hill, yeah. which was one of the uh, you know better neighborhoods in in the city of Richmond. Uh, during like Bellevue Elementary is now exactly. Um, yeah, the, the house was was a, a a very large mansion. The family had another uh, home somewhere on the outskirts of Richmond that was more of a family farm where much of their 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 food was actually produced. Um, so when when her father John Van Lu dies, he leaves um, a large fortune to the family. Uh, but the family had lived in Richmond and to a certain extent had kind of assimilated to their new um, to their new southern home. They had you know purchased this large house in a in, in a in a well heeled suburb. Uh, they had they had purchased and acquired slaves. But the family were still largely very much abolitionist and had a very northern outlook. So when John Van Loo dies, his daughter Elizabeth uh, and and her mother and siblings uh, try to free most of the family slaves. And um, at that time, there was a law uh, in in the state of Virginia that stipulated that um, free African Americans could not stay within the state, that they actually were supposed to leave within, I think, six months to one year. Mm -hmm. So being a free person of color at that time, while it was wonderful to have that legal status of being free, it frequently meant that you had to leave your home and go to an entirely different part of the country where you've probably never been in order to maintain that, that freedom. Um, so many of, of the Van Loo's you know, newly freed slaves, uh, some of them actually had to pose as slaves to continue to stay here in Richmond, um, or they were in some cases actually able to, to go and leave. Um, at least one of the Van Loo's former slaves was sent up to Philadelphia and, and, and went to a school there in the 1850s. Um, and we know that at least one of them went over to Liberia, which was a colony for newly emancipated uh, former African-American slaves uh, who, who wished to go back to Africa and, um, and kind of establish their, their own colony there. Right. Um, um, we know that, again, one of those Van Lu former slaves who went to Liberia later returned and played a very important role um, in the espionage ring in Richmond during the war. Sure. So, but is there, you know, the, um, she, her, her, her dad dies, right? She's just chilling. She lives, and it's, and it's like the, the Adams Mansion as well, right? So it's like one of the first, oldest, one of the most amazing houses. It's a, it's a, yeah, it was an enormous house with a fantastic view kind of overlooking Rockets Landing and, and downtown Richmond. Um, very close to the hill that leads down to Shaco Bottom. So she really would have had a view of pretty much the entire city yeah. and everything from the shipyards over to um, over to the ironworks over at at, uh, at Tredegar. She may have been able to see the the, the Virginia State Capitol uh, and possibly even the White House of the Confederacy, which would have been situated on a on a uh, you know fairly high up on the hill. Right. At least a nice you know two block walk down yeah. to that overlook. But I mean, is there any indication of what she's doing before the war? I mean, she just well, we know that she seems to not be overly concerned with public opinion because being a um, a northern-born woman, uh, you know, living in the South, um, 
She could have simply completely assimilated and behaved as a common, you know, Richmond woman was was supposed to behave, uh, but she didn't. She chose to free her family's slaves and right. was fairly outspoken on her beliefs and thoughts about abolition. So we know that at least in the antebellum period that she was expressing those kinds of sentiments, sure. uh, which in my mind kind of laid the groundwork for her response once the, once the war broke out and Virginia left the Union and joined up with the Confederacy, and especially once it became the capital of the Confederacy, right. that she, again, to a certain extent, did not really hold back um, especially in those early months with kind of expressing the fact that she was not a big fan of, of the Confederacy. Um, we know that various groups of Richmond women initially um, tried to get her to join them in doing different patriotic activities such as sewing uniforms for Confederate soldiers and Elizabeth Van Lu uh, would turn them down and would right. not participate. So she was expressing to them through her actions, or as the case may be, through her inaction, that she was not going to support the Confederacy. Um, but, but she also but like, learned what is, that... What is her life, you know what I'm saying? Like, like more like, what is like a super rich single woman, <laughs> Annie Bellum, I mean, what the heck does she do all? You know, she doesn't have a job. She doesn't, she's not dating. Well, right? traditionally, um, women in the antebellum period, if they were not... Um, too busy with ta with taking care of children or running a household, which would typically take a lot of time. Um, they also filled up a lot of their time with different voluntary ac activities, and particularly um, participating in, in different kinds of associations that would help uh, those who were less fortunate, or perhaps through their churches or things like that. So there was a certain amount. Um, uh, that you know, if you were wealthy and privileged and had some time, that you could then basically volunteer your time doing nice things for other people, or, or at the very least, participating in in different kinds of ladies' organizations. Right. Um, so they might, and, and these things were always very much centered around what was considered the appropriate sphere of activity for women. So things like you know, raising money for hospitals or churches or. Um, there weren't public schools in Richmond at that time, but 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 possibly education or children or looking after orphans, mm -hmm. things like that that would have been somewhat considered kind of motherly uh, would have fallen under their auspices. Right. Now, all that being said, I don't know if Elizabeth Van Lu was particularly involved in any of those types of things. Um, she may have been very much involved with kind of helping to run the family's household in the mansion on Grace Street uh, up on Church Hill. We also don't know how, how often she went back to the family farm on the outskirts of Richmond or how frequently that she may have stayed there. Uh, right. but, but with the family gone, or, or, or with, with her father dead and her brother had, had basically taken over the family business, um, he wasn't quite as good at the family business as the father was. Yeah, it's one of the weirdest things. I mean, it's like, I think it's, uh, it's one of the coolest stories in the city, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the... The, the mystery and whatever but then it's also like you know the lady with the biggest house and this like if not the biggest house one of the biggest houses yeah in this definitely city. one of the biggest i don't know if it was actually the biggest i would doubt it it was but it was definitely definitely one a, of the most significant a very prominently and, placed sign of the family's arrival here in richmond and considering that they had literally just come here uh they were probably some of the most well-to-do fairly new arrivals here Sure. And there doesn't seem to be much of any indication yeah. of what, you know, she wasn't in charge, you know, they weren't in charge of any, you know, normally you're that rich, even if you're not doing anything, like, you, you're in charge of this now. <laughs> yeah. And someone else does the work, yeah. you know, at least like, but.
Well, what happens when the war breaks out is that I don't think Elizabeth set out with any kind of mindset that she was going to become a spy. I think she was very much a person of opportunity who took advantage of opportunities as they presented themselves. Mm -hmm. I think initially she was probably much more interested in doing whatever she could for the federal prisoners of war who who were being brought to Richmond. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, with with Richmond um, not being captured during the war, it was a fairly safe place not only for Confederates who were who were seeking shelter here but it was also a safe place to keep prisoners of war Mm. so there were a number of different prison camps um, and and prisons here Um, the um, there was a a a prison camp on Bell Isle uh, Mm -hmm. which uh, had had the natural water barrier to help keep people there Um, there were numerous uh, tobacco warehouses and former um, slave jails or slave markets uh, which had been transformed into secure prisons for for various Union POWs. Uh, Libby Prison, um, which was one of the more famous of them, um, was a prison for for Union officers, mm-hmm. and that was one of um, one of the early prisons that that she would go and, and visit. Um, and it's kind of ironic the, the very first um, Union officer that she approached about getting permission to go and basically give food, clothing, books, possibly serve as a nurse to any of of, of, of the Union officers being held prisoner there. The very first person who she approached was Lieutenant Todd who was none other than a brother to Mary Todd Lincoln, (laughs) who was the wife of President Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln's family were all from Kentucky, and as a border state, different family members ended up on different sides during the war. Um, So Elizabeth Van Loo asked Lieutenant Todd in 1861 if she could have permission to go into Libby Prison and serve as a nurse. Uh, he didn't feel comfortable giving her permission. Um, he actually had a bit of, of a reputation of being a very somewhat cruel person. Right. Uh, but he uh, recommended that she go get in touch with someone who was uh, at a higher level of the Confederate government. I think she eventually went and spoke with the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, who then referred her to uh, a general who was more in charge of the overall prison system, and mm-hmm. that gentleman finally gave, uh, did actually give her some some permission to go into Libby Prison and serve as a nurse. Now, she, and that doesn't mean that she, you know, had an office set up there and was there five days a week. It meant that she probably went down whenever she had time uh, and would do whatever she could to make them comfortable. Um, but we also know that they very quickly. Um, that the Union, or, or pardon me, that the Confederate prison guards uh, would often go through whatever she was trying to bring in to ensure that she wasn't smuggling in any materials that you know that that the prisoners were not supposed to have. Right. Um, they would also, uh, often, on some occasions, um, if she sent down a basket of food, they might eat all of it and right. not actually give it to any of of uh, of, uh, um, of those Union prisoners. Uh, but she really seems to have been very concerned with the well-being of any Union prisoners, which she could help. And then what began happening, we're not exactly sure how or even when, um, but she started uh, serving. Word got out that she was willing to harbor any uh, escapee Union prisoners at her home on Gray Street. And perhaps at about the same time, she also started essentially collecting information from Union prisoners uh, and finding ways to pass that along to the Union Army uh, that, by 1862, was on the outskirts of the city of Richmond. Right. And so, again, as uh, working as a person who was taking advantage of opportunities, 
she wasn't always aware um, what the, uh, of the value of the information. She was operating on the assumption that if she had a chance to gather it together, uh, write it down, and get it out to the Union Army, that they could sift through um, whatever pieces of, of information which she could give them, and that they could essentially decide what was important, and perhaps with, with their, their, their larger knowledge of, of what was going on, uh, figure out if, if something was, was really important. So frequently what was happening was you had these Union POWs who were overhearing bits of conversation from their Confederate prison guards, mm -hmm. maybe something in reference to the number of troops or a planned attack or when something was going to happen or if somebody right. was coming to someone else's aid. And so when Elizabeth or one other or, or, or some other Unionist happened to be down there visiting, they would pass along that information probably verbally and Elizabeth, um, if she was the personal recipient, would then find a way to write it down. Mm -hmm. If someone else told it to her, she would write it down on their behalf. And then um, she eventually came up with a rather elaborate system of smuggling all of these messages out of the city, right. uh, usually by hiding them in some kind of secret place. Um, hollowed out boot heels on people's shoes and boots were always very right. popular. Um, hollowed out eggs or turnips. Um, People would actually sew pieces of paper into their clothing, uh, or sometimes women would put it inside of a, a rolled-up coil of hair or, mm -hmm. or, or some kind of elaborate hairstyle. So any way that they could basically hide this, this written message. And later in the war, sometimes they became more elaborate with how they were trying to kind of, um, to, to kind of secure those messages. So they wouldn't even write it out in, print, in, in plain print. They might... Um, write it in some kind of invisible ink right. or they would use certain key or, 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 uh, or they would use certain keywords or phrases um, or they might Hiding even or there's even um, one account where she would um, take a book and she would use a, um, a sewing pin and she would prick certain letters on certain pages of the book and so if you were leafing through it you could look for those you know all of those pin pricks and read only those certain letters wow. and gradually piece together some kind of message um, she also began using cipher systems, which had been created uh, by the Confederate Secret Service and writing things in secret code. Um, and of course, you had to have a certain keyword to be able to crack that code. Right. Um, so she knew that whoever was going to be getting these on the opposite end would have to have you know access to all of the you know all of that information. Sure. Uh, but basically, through this variety of means, she would start smuggling things out. And when the war had first started, she wasn't really sure who was getting any of these messages. I mean, it was more of just kind of a desperate hope that right. that whoever she was sending out, which may be, you know, one of the Van Lu uh, African-American freed people who was posing as a slave um, or some other, uh, you know, white Richmonder who maybe was, you know, heading out of town on the pretense of going to a family farm or something, they would smuggle the message out of the city. And if they encountered a Union soldier who was picketing, um, which is basically when they're kind of on the outskirts of the army, kind of, you know, looking around and listening for anything unusual or trying to intercept anyone, mm -hmm. they would then give it to that person and basically hope that they would pass it up the chain of command. They would usually uh, give it to that Union soldier with the message that, um, it was a piece of vital information from a union informant within Richmond, um, and could they please, you know, get it to their commanding officer and pass it up the chain as as highly as as as, uh, as they thought that it was warranted. Yeah. Um, now, what happens about halfway through the war in 1863? 
as um, Union General jo Joseph Hooker actually created a Bureau of Military Information, which was a much more standardized approach to gathering all of this kind of random information and reports from various mm -hmm. spies, um, and basically trying to assess uh, any information and figure out what was actually useful um, for whatever campaigns or battles which they which, which they may have been planning. So that really was the, the first time when it became a much more standardized um, and, and defined kind of military approach to, to, to gathering all of that wartime information. So it's really pretty incredible that before that, that, that people like, um, like, like all of these, these wonderful unionists who were, who were working here in Richmond and hoping that the city would, would, would eventually go over to union hands, that they were kind of working on a wing and a prayer, right. uh, just really sending these messages out, thinking and hoping, you know, th that they're doing the very best, but never really right. sure exactly how far that it's getting. It's a heck of a risk as well for <laughs> it, something you're not sure. Absolutely, and there were certainly different accounts um, where e where e. No, I'm so, sorry. I have, I have a bit of a stuttering thing whenever I try to say ease on Elizabeth, and it's giving me fits here today. When 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 in 1862, when General McClellan had brought the Union Army just outside of Richmond. Elizabeth Van Loo was fully expecting him to succeed, and she even went as far as to prepare a bedroom in her Grace Street home for him, and had you know fresh flowers brought and really decorated it up. Was telling you know all of the household staff that it was General McClellan's room. Um, so she seemed to really think that uh, not only was he getting her her various messages, but that Union victory was imminent. Mm -hmm. So she and other Richmond Unionists were very much disappointed when. McClellan's uh, Seven Days campaign failed in 1862, and um, I think that it was partially in response to that that the Union Army had decided to try to create this new Bureau of Military in Information. Uh, sure. they, they really had a sense that there was good information out there, but they were not doing a good or cohesive job at gathering it together. Sure, absolutely. Huh. And um, so does she, I mean, and at that point, you know, because you I mean, it's insane. It's insane to think that there's just people wandering around and you're just passing information. Hopefully, that you know, you send someone yeah. out, and they'll find someone that you don't even know. That could be absolutely you know, who that is. I mean, you know, the I, you know, it could be. You know, I don't know why they wouldn't have Confederates wandering around <laughs> out there. You know, and then just say, "Oh, you handed me this. All right, you're under arrest." Yeah. You know. Well, there were different Confederate attempts to catch Elizabeth Van Lu in various kinds of treason. Uh, there were apparently um, individuals who were sent uh, sometimes to her front door at her house at uh, on Gray Street, uh, basically posing as informants. Uh, sometimes wanting to give her a letter or give her a verbal message or something. Um, and it would generally be someone that she did not recognize, uh, had never seen before. Um, and many of these unionist informants would sometimes carry um, uh, watch fobs or some kind of um, decorative uh, thing on their person that if it was turned a certain way, sometimes indicated that it was right. either safe to talk to them or at the very least would identify them as a fellow unionist. So if someone is standing on your front door and you don't recognize them and they don't have any of those little telltale tokens, uh, then it kind of raises a bit of, of, uh, of, of a red flag. And we know on, um, on the, 
we know that there were at, at least two or three occasions where uh, people approached Elizabeth Van Lu trying to, to essentially entrap her into kind of revealing that she was involved with these unionist activities. And, and, and are uh, these like proper like government folks, or is this just like the ladies that are all like? Usually, well, people. Um, <laughs> one of them, I think, was a woman of, of a bit of a rougher sort. I don't know if she was actually, you know, um, someone from one of the poorer classes, but she was definitely not one of the, you know, quote unquote, ladies of Richmond. Um, there was another fellow. I who, would start using that phrase a lot more for modern day people <laughs> of the rougher sort. The, uh, That's yes. <laughs> um, there was one fellow that. Um, she didn't recognize, and I don't know if there was anything particularly about him that really tipped her off, but um, she just didn't trust him. And a couple days later, she apparently thought that she recognized him in a Confederate uniform, you know, marching through town. Okay. Um, so they were probably trying different people, different tactics, different kinds of approaches, just hoping sure. that on the off chance that she might trust one of them and kind of reveal herself. But generally, if she didn't recognize or know that someone was, in fact, a, a, a trusted union spy, she would simply pretend like she had no idea what they were talking about. Right. Um, if they dropped a letter at her feet, she would say, why would you bring me such a thing, you know, and close the door and just basically pretend like she would have no idea why they would ever, you know, ever even consider her sure. for that. And she really went to great lengths um, to cultivate a persona that she um, wasn't a unionist and that if she had, in fact, said any union things early in the war, that it was more because she was slightly off her rocker. Um, she would start kind of muttering to herself, kind of wandering around, kind of talking to herself all the time and just kind of cultivated this slightly unkempt appearance where her right. hair was a little bit frazzled and her clothes always didn't quite look right. And people started calling her Crazy Bet. And she didn't, you know, tell them otherwise. She wanted them to think that she was just a little bit crazy, just a little bit nuts. Not anything dangerous, of course, just a little bit unconventional. Right. And again, kind of play, just play into their hands as that persona that she wasn't a threat. She was just a little bit odd. Sure. It seems like there's some kind of controversy now that people, there's some folks that are saying that she was only called that after the war. Or that she yeah. didn't play that. Like that, that's a, like a, I, I don't know. And that, that could be true. I honestly uh, have not looked into whether that's more of a post-war phenomenon, but I know that in the post-war years, as she became more isolated and living in the mansion on Church Hill, um, she definitely acquired somewhat of a patina of being, you know, a little bit of a crazy old lady. Sure. Um, and there's, you know, a, a photo of her sitting on a garden bench in her garden in her later years, and it, it looks a bit like, you know, a witch sitting about outside of this, like, old, right. <laughs> you know, house that's not quite falling down around her, but um, it definitely has a very lonely appearance. Yeah. Yeah, especially that old age. I, it was one of the things that, uh, that I've read that I always thought was really interesting that uh, Ellen Glasgow writes about it um, at some point and says that when she was growing up, that that was that was the legend that there was the old witch yeah. up on top of the house. It was very much a haunted house kind and, of kind of situation. Yeah, which is like fantastic, and that even the adults would tell tell their stories about like the boogeyman, which was the Elizabeth Van Lu. Mm -hmm. Um, which is awesome that someone's alive, but that, ex you know, that yeah. that's, <laughs> like, it's fantastic. Absolutely. How, how irresponsible your parents are. <laughs> they're, like, literally talking about someone. It's not, like, a fictional character. Yeah. It's, like, 
That's happens so. to be a neighbor or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think it's it's one of the great tragedies of Richmond, however, that that Grace Street home was torn down shortly after her death. Sure. Um, and that that is why the, the Bellevue School stands there today. It's not in the same uh, structure. It's just on, on the same site. But how wonderful would it have been for historians to be able to go into the Van Lu mansion and personally examine and find if there really were those secret rooms that sure. during the war that she was supposedly hiding um, all of these escaped Union prisoners in. Um, right. it, it would be amazing because it would answer so many questions. And um, you know, there, I, I, I do believe that there are that. I do believe there are some historians who you know question whether she was really hiding. Um, as many Union soldiers or as frequently as she was claiming to do it. Right. Uh, but she allegedly had um, kind of a, a secret room in the house that was um, kind of a, a low, almost like a, a crawl space under a, a pitched roof mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that um, I believe that the door was kind of hidden in a wall and she kept a dresser in front of it. Right. Um, and so that once the Union soldiers had escaped from one of the prisons and made it to her home, that she could keep them in there for days or even weeks at a time, um, you know, keeping them relatively comfortable and fed and clothed while they were waiting for an ideal escape out of the city of Richmond. Sure. Uh, and probably her best opportunity to hide the most soldiers happened in uh, February of 1864 when um, uh, a number of Union POWs had actually dug an underground tunnel out of Libby Prison, mm -hmm. and more than 100 prisoners actually escaped. About half of them were actually recaptured that night, uh, but I think it was about 58 or 59 prisoners yeah. actually made it um, up to Van Lu's home and may have actually hidden there. Right. Um, so that would have been her probably the single largest escape which which she would have assisted with but there were many other soldiers and you know ones or twos sometimes through feigning their own death um, they they might smear ashes on their face and you have to imagine that there were um, you know a lot of uh, sick POWs who were dying and they were daily removing many of those bodies from from both the hospitals and and the POW jails um, so if it was one of your daily jobs as a Confederate prison guard was to remove all of the dead bodies, you probably right. were not, you know, checking for a pulse on every single sure. one. And in fact, given fears about disease and, and that kind of thing, you were probably getting it over with as quickly as possible. Yeah. So we know that there was at least one instance and, and probably more. Uh, where a Union POW would, would basically pretend to be dead, would get carried out of the prison, taken to wherever they would, you know, keep all of the bodies, and then perhaps under cover of darkness, he would, you know, sneak up Church Hill and knock on the, the Van Lu mansion door and hope for a place to stay. Right, wow. Yeah. That's a daring thing, man. You don't want to get... Absolutely. Nobody's trying to get buried alive. And, yeah. Uh, well, there were also uh, Confederate prison guards um, who didn't have the strongest Confederate sympathies. And sometimes they may have actually been, you know, secret unionists. Other times they were unionists if the price was right. Um, so there was, um, and especially after, uh, after that establishment of the Bureau of Military Information, there was kind of more of a concerted effort to basically find out if certain people could be bought. And then if they could be, find out what their price was and, sure. and see. Um, and so there were, there were various, um, you know, plots to send, you know, lots of money down to Richmond in order to try to, you know, purchase more spies. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that and they were also very well aware that many unionists uh, would find the notion of taking money for their activities very offensive because right. they felt that they were doing it for purely patriotic reasons. Mm -hmm. And so, as far as we know, Elizabeth Van Lu initially uh, did not want to be paid anything, um, and in fact, they didn't think that it would really be necessary because she was such a staunch unionist. Right. Um, we think later on she started accepting the occasional gift of clothing and other items, um, perhaps not so much out of a desire for personal gain as the fact that with the blockade going on, it was very difficult to get much of anything new here, sure. here in Richmond. So she would have been taking advantage of some of those you know, union links to uh, you know, perhaps get some new fabric for a dress or perhaps a new bonnet or something. Um, but she certainly wasn't getting paid thousands and thousands of dollars as, as some other informants possibly were. Right. Elizabeth Van Lu kind of became the unofficial head of what became known as the Richmond Underground, which was right. the, the, the Richmond spy ring during the war. Um, she, um, again, partly because she got started so early in the war with kind of gathering information and trying to pass it along, uh, she came to know... Um, many of the most active members in 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 that um, in that Richmond underground and Richmond unionists and spies were a, a very diverse group of people um, some of these people um, were German um, or um, or Scottish immigrants, or some kind of European immigrant generally, um, because in 1862 the Confederacy uh, actually tried to um, state that um, that foreign-born immigrants could not be um, could not become nationalized Confederate citizens. And so, especially after that happens, there's a lot of foreign-born Southerners who are not necessarily that much in favor of the Confederacy, because if they can't become a full-fledged citizen, then they sometimes feel that they would be better off in, in union hands. Other people um, had always been unionist, because um, as, as European immigrants, they had come to the United States feeling some kind of really strong connection to the country, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden they find themselves living in a state that's decided to leave that new country, and they're right. kind of like, wait a minute, I'm still for the union. But when and, you say foreign born do you mean like from Germany or from I mean, like Maryland like from Ger like from Germany um, Richmond actually had a pretty sizable but, population of German immigrants but um, would someone from the north be con I mean because in their minds they're another country so anyone well from after you know what I'm saying is that yeah but I mean they wouldn't be considered you know a foreign-born immigrant okay. I don't think that that's what the law was was okay. applying to I think it was more you know immigrants from across the pond right. yeah okay <laughs> just, I was just checking yeah although that is you know one of those finer points I could be wrong about I really hadn't stopped to think about a if a northern-born person would then be considered a, an, an immigrant <laughs> it's a strange ordeal yeah because I know even with Van Lu, one of the things that she was outraged at you know at the end of her life that she everyone called her a spy when she would say, well, I was in my country. Yeah, see, she very much felt that she was not a spy. She was sticking by the country that she'd been born in. Right. You know, she was a United States citizen, so she wasn't doing anything wrong. It was the Confederates who had you know, flipped sides. They, sure. they, they were the traitors. Right. Um, so, yeah, she, um, she definitely did not see herself as you know, switching sides or doing anything kind of under the table. She saw herself more as, you know, as, as, as keeping the faith, as, right. as, as staying true, whereas most everyone else in Richmond had kind of gone over to the other side. Sure. Huh. 
But so she starts basically um, once once the the Richmond Underground starts to get developed, she's really talking and consorting with people that she probably never, in some cases, would have had anything to do with prior to the war. So again, you know, being this very wealthy. Um, you know, very high on, on the social ladder uh, woman, uh, she probably would not have had uh, prior to the war um, much opportunity or reason to have conversations with, you know, German immigrants or, right. or people of that sort. Um, we know that another um, fairly well, well accomplished informant in the Richmond Underground was a female prostitute whose name, uh, or, or, or at least what she went by, was Clara. We don't know if that was really her name or just a handle that she used in, in the Richmond Underground, but um, she apparently would gather information and pass it along to, to various sources and sometimes reported um, having some very well-to-do clients who were members of the Confederate cabinet. Right. <laughs> um, so she would have um, access to to information that would certainly be of great interest to someone like Elizabeth, who could then pass it along outside of the city. But I don't think Elizabeth and Clara would have even looked at each other if they were passing each other on the street, if they right. were even walking on the same street at the same time. Um, there are uh, there were certain members of the Richmond Underground whose professions made them very well suited to talk to um, people of all different social classes sure. throughout the city. So one of the um, one of the most well placed Richmond spies was a fellow who, who ran a bakery, and he had a cart that he would drive around town and, 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 and deliver things. And we know that he came to the White House of the Confederacy and uh, would actually uh, speak with, with some of, some of the, the servants and slaves there. And uh, it's believed that he may have been actually gathering information from one of those individuals and passing it along. Um, and, you know, his, uh, as a baker, um, you know, everyone has to eat. So yeah. he, he, he really would have had access to, to lots of different information. Uh, there was another fellow who was, um, he, he, uh, he actually ran a very successful distillery. And he was making, a, at one point during the war, something like $5,000 a day. And uh, they eventually imprisoned him for being a, a Unionist spy. Now, whether right. he actually was, maybe he was, or maybe Richmonders were just upset that he was getting so rich by making Confederate soldiers drunk on such a regular basis. Right. Um, but these are, you know, again, people that she maybe wouldn't have called friends or associates necessarily before the war, mm -hmm. um, and they may not always have the same aims. Uh, some of these people are probably much more interested in just keeping their own economic interests going or making yeah. sure you know that, that their own businesses are going to survive, um, whereas others like... Well uh, are, the prostitution and <laughs> liquor industry has benefited pretty well. <laughs> Absolutely. From and then there's somebody like, like um, you know, someone who, who, who's like Elizabeth Van Loo, who really doesn't have much to gain by her unionist activity and really has right. quite a lot to lose. Um, but she, she does it anyway, strictly out of patriotic motives. Sure. And there were, um, I've, I've mentioned at various points, you know, talking about Richmond unionists. And I, sh I should make a distinction here that not every person who was living in Richmond who had unionist sentiments was a spy. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, de I mean, I would say definitely there were a lot more unionists who were not engaging in any kind of espionage act, uh, sorts of activities during the war. But the small percentage that did, um, some of them would do it regularly uh, on, you know, on, a, on some kind of regular basis throughout the war. Others would do it again as, as opportunity arose. So right. they may only do one or two things that would, you know, help um, or, or, uh, or that would qualify as espionage, but the, the, um, 
the overall sum of their collective efforts is really uh, what, you know, in those latter half of, um, of the war really helped to transform how the Union Army was approaching uh, Richmond and and its overall plan to to capture Richmond. When, and is it what's the penalty? Is it is it going to be execution? Or if you are um, if you are convicted of being a spy or basically being a traitor to the Confederacy, then yes, it is execution. Um, the first um, the first person executed during the war for an act of espionage was Timothy Webster and he was executed on April 29th, 1862. What's kind of ironic, um, he was executed here in Richmond um, for um, uh, basically for kind of loitering around some, um, some kind of military fortifications. They didn't actually capture him with any papers or anything like that. They just thought that he was acting kind of suspicious in a kind of a suspicious place. Um, and they ultimately decided that he, he needed to be hanged. What was ironic is he was actually much more involved in espionage for, for the Union than any of the Confederates ever realized. Um, he had actually been working um, as a police officer in New York City prior to the war and got involved with, with the Pinkerton agents um, who, who became the, the, very fa the very famous private eyes. Um, and so he was involved in all kinds of things that the, that the Confederates never figured out. Right. <laughs> so even though they actually hanged someone who was a, a very, very well-known spy um, who had been active for years, um, they didn't really even realize exactly what they had when they... When, when they caught him, and where, where I, I know there were gallows, you know where the where the the, the Negro Barrow, the old Negro Barrow round is now. I mean, is that where that would have happened, or I honestly is there don't any way? know. Yeah, okay. I, I'm not sure if there was like a special place. I mean, you might. One could assume that if they're going to make an example out of someone for being, you know, a traitor and doing something yeah. treasonous, they might do it in a more public area. But I really don't know. Yeah. I was actually kind of curious about that myself because I couldn't find where, you know, people wrote newspaper accounts about him giving a speech or something. So it may have been that it wasn't a very public spectacle. Sure. But, yeah, right. I'm, I'm not even sure exactly where it happened. Huh. And um, so the – because she, is she officially in charge of this thing or are there – She is not officially in charge. That's okay. one thing about the Richmond Underground. Um, it's very difficult to learn – much about it in general, because by its very it's nature, underground. it's secretive. It's, right. <laughs> you know, these are people who were successful because they were so good at keeping things under wraps. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know is that many of them wrote extensively after the war about their activities. It'd be wonderful if somebody sat down and wrote a book about all of their different relationships and, you know, kind of how they worked things and who they were working with. Uh, but as far as we know, um, we just kind of get, you know, hints here and there. Um, but it is it is pretty pretty incredible that this diverse group of people um, of various you know social statures and, and different and different economic levels were able to get in touch with each other through this rather informal um, organization right. and manage to in a fairly cohesive way you know get that information uh, you know over to the union lines and into the hands of people who could do things with that information. Sure. Um, we know that um, Elizabeth Van Lu. Uh, 
perhaps her most famous wartime activity uh, occurred in March of 1864. Uh, there was a Union raid right. that was... just about to ask you about that. Yeah, there was a Union raid that was going to come to Richmond, and it basically failed. Uh, what happened was there was a colonel named Ulrich Dahlgren um, who was killed during the raid, and there were papers uh, taken off of his person that seemed to indicate a plot to capture and kill a number of top-level Confederate brass, which included... Confederate President Jefferson Davis. And what's kind of ironic about all of this is there's been a lot of research done on the papers that were found on Colonel Dahlgren trying to determine if they were um, some kind of Confederate plot to kind of stir up sentiment and wasn't, and it, and it really wasn't a real plot or if this was something that the U.S. government really intended to do. And I think most researchers pretty well agree at this time that they are authentic documents, that that was what the Union planned to do. Um, and of course, once the Confederacy found these papers on Colonel Dahlgren, they started publishing them in newspapers and basically saying things like, um, you know, this basically goes against uh, all of the rules of warfare at that time as they knew it. It was a very ungentlemanly way right. to, to, to kind of pursue things. Uh, so the Confederates were just jumping mad about it and, you know, basically had no problem telling the whole world about this sinister plot and they were very glad that, they were very glad that it had failed. Now, when I say most Richmonders and most Southerners, that, of course, does not include people like Elizabeth Van Lu and other Unionists who were very much hoping that Dahlgren and his raiders would have succeeded. Right. Um, they apparently were getting reports that uh, Dahlgren, who'd been kind of hastily buried somewhere, that his corpse was being kind of mistreated. Uh, he became kind of the embodiment of this, you know, Union plot to kill Davis and the other Confederates. And they basically they were going to come down the James River on the south side and attack Belle Isle, free all the prisoners. Yeah, there and kind and of overrun the city and, then, and just right. kind of mass chaos. And, it was and yeah, yeah, they got basically see what it's what seems like just numb scullery. Like yeah. one side, one guy got one of the half of the team got caught up. It was then, very poor planning, um, bad coordination. I mean, how much of it you can you can really pinpoint on the nature of, of communication at that time versus somebody just really screwed up somewhere. Right. I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, the, the long and short of it was that the raid never happened in any degree. Um, certainly, no, you know, none of the prisoners from Belle Isle were ever, you know, set loose or armed or anything like that. I, and, I, I um, understand. I think they only got to like Goochland. Yeah, they really did not get very close to Richmond yeah. at all. It was <laughs> very much on, on, on the outskirts, you know, even of, of, what, of what we consider Richmond as today. Um, but Elizabeth Van Lu and the other Unionists were getting these reports that Dahlgren's body was being, you know, somehow, you know, somehow kind of mistreated, and they decided that it was it was terrible, and they needed to go and essentially, you know, rescue the body and give it a, a secret burial somewhere where 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 he would be kept safe. So she managed to discover where he had been buried. And apparently in the middle of the night uh, with, with, a, with a wagon and some help from some freed slaves, uh, they went out and they disinterred his remains and they took it to a, um, a secret grave, uh, had him placed into a proper uh, coffin and had him reburied. Um, now, while all this is going on, which of course nobody was, was, was really supposed to know that any of that was happening, um, they... Um, 
when they disinterred him, they, they filled in the original grave so that basically the Confederates wouldn't necessarily know that he was no longer resting there. And um, the Confederates were getting a lot of feedback from the North that they basically wanted uh, this, this Colonel Dahlgren's body given back to them. And so after some time, the Confederates finally relented, deciding that this was the, the proper thing to do. And so they were very much amazed when they went to, to disinter Colonel Dahlgren on, on their own and found right. that the grave was now empty. Lincoln, and Lincoln so, attacked him when he was a vampire hunting. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so now it, um, this, which, you know, this, this is one of those episodes that the larger world may have never known anything about except for that twist that they did go try to disinter him and found that he had already been disinterred. Um, so, um, it, uh, it, it, it really became one of Elizabeth's, you know, shining moments during the war that she pulled this off in pure secrecy, uh, managed to give a proper burial to what she considered as a very notable Union hero yeah. um, and kind of right this, this kind of wrong that, as far as she was concerned, had been visited against this, this poor man's corpse. And, and where did she bury him? I honestly don't know. I think that he was, after the war, he was disinterred a second time and was finally buried in his final resting place. So right. his, his, his final resting place is now currently known uh, and is marked, but I don't know is that the, the secret grave ha yeah. ha is, is actually known. It may have been on her family's farm, you know, just outside of Richmond or somewhere else. Right. I mean, there was, so much, there was so much union activity at that time that they, it wouldn't have been too, too far afield. Right. Um. And because she's also involved with getting the slaves and, you know, other trickeries, because I guess it's probably more even like right in your more in your wheelhouse is um, the Mary Elizabeth Bowser. Yes, that was the other the the Confederacy. Yeah, I've, I've made some some allusions throughout our discussion today about um, the uh, the freed African-American who was sent to Philadelphia for school, as well as uh, one who went over to Liberia in the 1850s. And it was the same person, and her name was Mary Bowser. And she is probably um, the most famous um, kind of associate of e, um, of e, e Elizabeth Van Loo's during the war. Uh, Mary Bowser was born around 1840, so when the war broke out, that would make her about 20 years old. Uh, she was an African-American woman who um, was apparently very intelligent and, according to some reports, actually had uh, a photographic memory. Mm. So um, because she's um, educated up north and is taught to read and write and has this amazing, um, you know, these, these, these amazing powers of memory, once the war breaks out, Elizabeth realizes that Mary can be a very, very useful tool. And we have to realize that Elizabeth must have realized what a danger that this was for Mary. If Mary was caught spying, she would not have the same, um, you know, social and racial and economic kinds of, of, of barriers that, that were shielding Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. um, so she really had to be very cautious in what she was doing. Um, but when she learned that Verena Davis, the first lady of the Confederacy, was looking for, um, you know, trustworthy, capable servants and slaves to work in the White House of the Confederacy, Elizabeth Van Loo saw it as a wonderful opportunity. And so we think that she probably personally approached Verena and offered uh, the services of Mary Bowser. Now, as far as we know, she did not call Mary Bowser by that name 
to Verena Davis. Uh, probably some false name was given. Uh, we think that that name was Ellen Bond. So if uh, anyone looking for references to Mary Bowser in the White House of the Confederacy, that's not what, what the Davis family would have known her as. Uh, but we also know from some recent research that Mary Bowser went by um, various other names uh, throughout her life, kind of depending on what she was doing. Um, so it's she it's like is Mary Jane Richardson. Is one, yeah, right? she's she's very difficult to 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 be able to track through the historical records because I think it's it's a totally different name that's on the ship manifest when she goes over to Liberia. Okay. Um, so she has proved tricky to try to research over the years, but what we think is kind of the the kernel of the truth in all of this is that she probably did go work at the White House of the Confederacy. Whether or not she actually had a photographic memory, I can't say, but her abilities to read and write would have been tremendously helpful as she's wandering through, you know, cleaning President Davis's office on the second floor. She would have been able to look at documents lying on the tables. And of course, Davis, as the Confederate president, if he's writing a message, he's not going to be personally putting it into a secret encrypted cipher. That's right. someone else's job. So his message will just be lying there on the desk in full, you know, plain English. Sure. So Mary would be able to access those documents and then transmit that information, uh, largely of military nature, um, to either, uh, you know, either, either directly to Elizabeth Van Lu, um, or she could have gone down to the bakery and told it to that unionist baker, um, or, or, or some of the other informants who were no doubt coming by the house. Um, we also know that she may have been um, involved in passing messages by sewing them in, inside of clothing. So there are all kinds of different ways that Mary could have been kind of secretly smuggling information out of the White House. Um, and she remained at the White House for, as far as we can tell, probably most of the war, probably from 1861 or early 1862 until January of 1865, when for some unknown reason, someone or some people within the White House began to began to have some suspicions about what Mary was up to. Mm -hmm. And Mary apparently felt that they were circling a little too close, and so she left. Um, by that time, there had already been numerous other African-American slaves who had fled the White House. Um, one of them, or two of them, who had left in January of 1864 are, are actually thought to have tried to burn the house down. Right. Uh, luckily, the fire was actually discovered and put out, you know, very, very quickly. So there was not any kind of extensive, uh, any, any kind of ex extensive damage. Um, but they were like in the basement. Yeah, right? it was probably down in the basement, which is actually where um, there was a fireplace down there. So you know, I'm not, I'm not even sure exactly where, where in the basement that that the fire was supposed to have started. Um, but in, in any case, by the time that Mary was leaving one year later, there had already been several other household staff members who had liberated themselves. So um, some people may have, um, who, who were suspicious of Mary, may have wondered about the timing or really, you know, what she was up to. Uh, but other people may simply have assumed that, you know, she was just, you know, um, someone who, if they weren't necessarily a spy, they had just run away. Sure, sure. Um, and so the uh, when the Union Army comes in, I mean, at what point does she does is, you know does she reveal herself as a spy? Well, Elizabeth is known um, certainly to various Union commanders uh, as a reliable spy within Richmond. Um, she actually manages to establish. Um, 
some some relationships with some of those people um, through writing, of course, until she's actually able to meet s uh, some of them, um, most notably General Grant. Uh, she apparently gave him some information in the spring of 1865 that um, that was very helpful to him in uh, in the events leading up to the Battle of Five Forks, which was one of the you know really one of the last battles of the war, right. um, and. Um, after the war, uh, he, she she ends up meeting with him on his very first visit to Richmond, and shortly after that, he actually um, names her as the um, as the as the postmistress mm -hmm. uh, of the post office here in Richmond. Which at that time, um, giving an office like being a postmaster or a postmistress was kind of an honorific kind of thing. So in a way, he was basically rewarding her by right. giving her this very prominent position uh, for her her her. her her several years of wartime service. Mm -hmm. So um, she certainly helped numerous, um, you know, she certainly helped numerous Union generals throughout the war. I don't even know is that I have an exact number of how many different armies that, that she probably helped. But sure. as long as they were outside of Richmond, she was probably very much trying to, to go and communicate with them. And we know that people like General Grant would... Um, they would sometimes refer to her as, you know, a very trustworthy, you know, Richmond woman or something like that. And they, they always seem to be talking about her in particular, mm -hmm. which kind of does give the impression that she's something of, of a ringleader, if not the, you know, top leader of, right. of the Richmond underground. Hmm. I mean, and they, um, the, did, do they ever meet? So, I mean, uh, Grant, did she ever meet Grant? Yes. Um, I think that they actually met on, um, when he first came to Richmond, uh, shortly after the war ended, I don't know the exact date of that, um, right. uh, or have any particular details about you know whether it was just a quick you know meet and greet or whether they sat and he you know thanked her for you know this right. particular message or something. Um, but he really seems to have credited her with a lot of very valuable information. Um, now, whether she stood out more than some of the other, you know, top Richmond Unionists, I couldn't say for sure. But the fact that she that she was the one who was named postmistress certainly seems to to indicate that something about her activities or her communications set her kind of above and beyond all of the other Union spies. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And then, so you said she's like basically living. Um, somewhat of an outcast, so. Yes. Uh, once the war ends, and, I mean, by when Grant names her postmistress, everyone in Richmond then feels that there's a level of confirmation that everything that they suspected about her all along was always true. Mm -hmm. And in their eyes, she is a traitor. Now, right. we've already mentioned that she didn't see herself that way, but it really seems to just stick in the craw of many Richmonders that this woman who you know, may or may not have cultivated this, this this crazy personality during the war, that she now, while so many other Richmond families are struggling to make ends meet, that she's, you know, apparently profiting from right. um, from these these the, the, these former Union generals. Um, and so Grant, once he becomes president, uh, is very well known for giving all kinds of political positions to all of his cronies, and he becomes very unpopular as Reconstruction really, really gets started. Um, and so Elizabeth is kind of, you know, presiding over the post office here in Richmond with that 
you know, U.S. grant stamp stamp of approval through it all. And um, I really feel like that probably was the nail in her social coffin here here in Richmond, sure. um, as, as as though she actually needed one. Um, but if nothing else, I think all of that would have would have ensured that her Grace Street home would have been torn down very shortly after her death. People just wanted nothing nothing to do with her. Right. And so, I mean, she has no heirs. No, right, she, yes. so she, she never married. She never had any children. Um, I know that um, her brother, uh, John Van Lu, uh, he was married during the war, um, had a bit of a difficult time with his wife. And I know Is that... He in, in the city as well? He was in the city um, for some time. I think he may have, been conscri- may have been conscripted toward the end of the war or something. Um, or maybe he just went out to work at the family farm, but he wasn't physically in Richmond for the whole duration. Okay. Um, but when the Union armies trying to, or, or pardon me, when, when the Confederacy becomes very suspicious of Elizabeth Van Lu's activities uh, in the latter half of the war, and they're really trying to build some kind of case against her, they start, of course, interviewing uh, family and friends. And one person that they're very interested in talking to is Elizabeth's sister-in-law, who at that point was living separately from the rest of the family. And there had apparently been some arguments and things of that nature. Um, So they may have been very hopeful that she would have all kinds of information which which she could share. But um, fortunately, Elizabeth uh, had not divulged any of her activities or that kind of thing to her sister-in-law. So so essentially, um, when when the Confederates were, were asking her all kinds of questions, she just didn't know anything. She right. probably would have very happily have, have turned them both over, uh, but she just simply didn't. You know, just, just she just simply didn't have any dirt on them at, right. at that time. Mm-hmm. But so. it, it really goes to show, though, that if you, you know, if, if there's a possibility that someone who is related to you, uh, you know, could possibly turn you in, that literally the people living almost under your very same roof right. could. Uh, could be the one to to tell someone something that that could get you hanged. It was a very real possibility, and Elizabeth must have realized every day when she woke up that it could be her last opportunity to be able to do something in in the service of the Union because she just never knew who who might be watching or who might be listening. And I'm pretty sure, and it may not be every single one, but you can stand there in front of Bellevue Elementary and look at most of those houses. It pretty much looks the same. You know, they were in cobblestones instead of yeah. pavement and whatnot. But it's a very, very um, well preserved neighborhood in right. in the city of Richmond, and you do get a sense for the, the the grandeur and the grace and the ease that must have accompanied that kind of life. Right. Um, but I still think that 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 house on Grace Street would have been a very spooky place toward toward the end of of the eighteen hundreds. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's uh, it's almost even spookier now, just because it is the only thing that's gone. It's like how yeah, it's like why wh- why did this get obliterated right. of all things? Oh yeah, <laughs> the of the earth. yeah. We're just really fortunate that there are a handful of photographs of the house right. which which have survived. So we, we do know what it looked like and just how 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 lovely and grand that it was. Uh, but again, to have gone inside and to have seen that that secret room where all all of the all of the Union POWs were supposed to be kept. Uh, she's supposed to have had, um, I think, a, a hollowed-out um, newel post or banister or something on on her staircase, where 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 she could hide messages. Just all kinds of little hiding places, kind of kind of tucked around for either concealing messages or or you know various prisoners of war. Yeah. So you kind of wonder, you know, how many of these were already pre-existing before the war began, and how many did she create? Uh, sure. 
but um, she had systems worked out where um, she might hide a, a message inside of um, something that was on, on her fireplace mantle. Mm-hmm. And then she would leave the room and a housekeeper would come in and they would always know to go and check that particular hiding place. And if there was any messages rolled up, then they would take it and right. smuggle it out of the house and, and kind of get things going that way. Yeah. So. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and what, do you know what she died from? She was pretty old. She was, I don't know what she died of and I don't just, know when offhand. Uh, I she, she, I want to say it was right around the turn of the 20th century. Um it's hard to say, you know, what people died of back then. Yeah. But um, as far as we know, I don't even think she had any family members living with her at that time. So, well, that's terrible for her. Yeah. Um, but appreciate, it. And, and unless you got something else. No, I uh, think that's everything. Yeah, appreciate um, your time. Happy to do it. Very happy yeah. to do it. That was it. Thank you very much, Catherine Wright. Thank you very much to the Museum of the Confederacy. Thanks to Leo for helping me put this together. Thanks to Long Arms for letting me play the song. And I'm going to actually play the whole song here in just a second when I can finally clam up. But go to iTunes, you know, buy their album there. Uh, Constant Comment is the new one. A uh, couple albums on there, I believe. While you're on iTunes, you know, go to History Replays today there and uh, you know, download the back episodes. Uh, write a review for me there on iTunes. That would be really fantastic. And, um, you know, it's coming up on the full year, the first full year of History Replays today. Uh, hopefully not the last, um, but that's more than 24 hours of content. Um, so if you can kick in five, ten bucks for that, if you can kick in a hundred, that's awesome as well. And you can find out information about that at historyreplaystoday.org. Click on the, the support button. And you can also find out, again, about sponsoring the podcast, um, and you know, if you can't afford any of that, the easiest way to support the podcast is just tell somebody about it. Uh, tell somebody they should subscribe to History Replays today, the Richmond History Podcast, and make it a great day.